Good morning, everybody. Welcome and welcome uh, to people watching us online. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon and I'm also a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Um, the U.S. Centers for Disease and Control, Disease Control and Prevention reported over 70,000 drug overdose deaths in 2017, of which more than 49,000 were opioid related. That's a 13% increase over the previous year. Fentanyl and heroin accounted for 75% of the opioid related deaths in 2017, and 68% of deaths attributed to prescription pain relievers involved multiple other drugs, including fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, benzodiazepines, and alcohol. The government's response to the overdose crisis focuses primarily on interdiction and other efforts at curtailing the supply of drugs for non-medical use. A concerted effort on federal and state level to curtail the production and prescription of opioids has led to a 58% drop in high-dose opioid prescriptions since 2008 and a 29% drop in total opioid prescriptions since 2010. This has only served to drive non-medical users of prescription opioids to more dangerous and deadly drugs such as heroin and fentanyl while causing many acute and chronic pain patients to suffer in the process, some desperately turning to the black market and some even resorting to suicide. The policy approach of the past half century is clearly not working. It's time to ask the question, just what is the goal of public policy regarding the non-medical use of licit or illicit drugs? If the goal is to see less people die, less lives destroyed, more sufferers of substance abuse disorder get help, and to reduce the spread of deadly communicable diseases that result from non-medical drug use in an underground market, then policies should be redirected toward harm reduction strategies. Unlike prohibition, harm reduction strategies begin with the realistic and non-judgmental premise that there has never been and will never be a drug-free society. Akin to the to the credo of my medical profession, first do no harm, harm reduction seeks to avoid measures that exacerbate the harms the black market already inflicts on non-medical users and to focus strictly on the goal of reducing the spread of disease and death from drug use. Harm reduction involves a range of public health options including safe syringe programs, medication assisted treatment, deregulation of overdose treatments like naloxone and decriminalization of cannabis. Today, we will see and hear presentations from noted scholars, clinical researchers, clinicians, and leaders from the US and Canada who will share with us their knowledge of and real-world experiences with various harm reduction strategies, new and old. We wish to express our gratitude to longtime Cato sponsor, Robert Ayers, who partnered with us in making this event possible through a generous grant. Uh, and with that, I'm going to introduce our first panel, which is dealing with uh, safe syringe programs. Uh, I'm going to, each one will speak and then we'll do Q&A at the end. And I'll, uh, so I'll ask you to wait until all three speakers are done. Our first speaker will be Darwin Fisher. Darwin is a senior program manager for PHS Community Services Society, a socially active not-for-profit based in Vancouver, British Columbia. He manages Insight, North America's first supervised injection facility, and helps oversee a variety of innovative health and social services run by PHS, including overdose prevention sites located in Vancouver's down, uh, overdose prevention sites, a detox, detox and treatment program, and a peer review needle exchange. 
All of these programs are located in Vancouver's downtown east side, one of the poorest urban neighborhoods in North America. Darwin has 20 years of experience working in the DTES, downtown east side, and has worked at Insight since September 2004. So why don't you speak, and then I'll introduce the next speaker afterwards. Darwin? Thanks, buddy. I wrote that blurb. It's really weird to have it read back to you. <laughs> and in terms of uh, public health experts or leaders, I'm not sure where I fall in there. Uh, but I have worked in the downtown east side for about 20 years, which is a really interesting area. Um, and so let's go inside insight. Um, so I am figuring out how to use this. There we go. So Vancouver, BC, that's where I'm from. It's a modern mid-sized city, the third largest city in Canada. Very diverse city. Uh, very pretty city, generally a uh, reasonably wealthy city, but within that area there's a very small portion of an area called the downtown east side. Now this area is fascinating because it's originally the center of downtown Vancouver. A hundred years ago it's where City Hall is, where the stock exchange is, where the wealth is concentrated, but in a hundred years it's upended itself completely in the economic scale and it's become one of the poorest urban areas in Canada. And who lives in this area? Some of our most marginalized citizens. We deinstitutionalized some of our mental health consumers and many of those of that population ended up migrating to the downtown east side. Uh, there has been the flight of First Nations people leaving reserves, coming to Vancouver for some understandable reasons, the reasons that we come to cities, connection, opportunity. Most of that population has been marginalized to the poorest areas like the downtown east side. There are many people who live on disability, many people who are ostracized from other communities. Most of the residents of this area come from backgrounds of trauma and pain. So what happens is gradually through the 80s and into the 90s, the downtown east side, the housing in the downtown east side becomes more decrepit, welfare rates are stagnant, the population influx into this area increases and we start to have a crisis. It's a crisis around housing, it's a crisis around healthcare, it's a crisis around pain. And what we notice is that illicit drug use starts to increase, specifically injection drug use. The availability of low price and reasonably high potency cocaine and heroin becomes abundant within the area. And injection drug use starts to increase as the 80s turn into the 1990s. And this is not noticed by the civic officials. It's not noticed by the healthcare infrastructure. It is noticed by the chief coroner. His name is Vince Kane. And as the 80s are turning into the 1990s, he is noticing that overdose fatalities are increasing year by year in this area. And that this is a unique thing to British Columbia and mostly centered in the downtown east side. So that is kind of the bellwether that sets off the fact that something drastic is happening in this area, in this city. And what we start to see is that with injection drug use, not only are fatalities increasing due to illicit overdose deaths, but HIV seroconversion is becoming rampant. We have a very unhelpful blizzard of cocaine that descends upon the downtown east side in the early 1990s, and injection cocaine use becomes frequent. We are still at this point grappling with even the basic tenets of harm reduction, like providing clean equipment, so syringe sharing is epidemic, uh, as well as syringe sharing the provision of basic things that needles, uh, needle exchanges provide, like clean water, is 
absent from the community. So what you have is you have a massive amount of public injections happening in the alleys and in the doorways in what are basically the worst situations we could devise for what is putatively a medical procedure. So you have injection drug use happening in the margins of the alleys, the same places that are used as washrooms by the homeless population. It's unsanitary, it's hidden. The liabilities include disease transmission risks around syringe sharing, soft tissue infections, which are rampant due to lack of access to even basic hygiene, and you have sudden death fatalities happening in these areas that are unseen. So we have a crisis that is happening, and the community is where the recognition of that crisis starts to become actioned. And the politicization of the community, the politicization of drug users within this community is one of the most important events that happens during the 1990s. And that community starts to push for harm reduction, expanded syringe access, and supervised consumption facilities. Supervised consumption facilities came on the radar in the late 1990s in this community, and they were as controversial to Vancouver at that time as they would be in any other city. So that process of making the larger population aware that we have a drastic crisis, and then starting to call our public officials into account for the response to that crisis is something that happens between the late 1990s and the opening of Insight in 2003. So Insight opens in 2003 after being pushed by the community, and part of that push included the opening of illicit supervised consumption sites throughout the community. These would open up, they would be allowed to exist for a while, and then eventually the Vancouver Police Department would shut them down and they would move to a different area. But it's sort of an envelope pushing move that says essentially this is what has to happen. And what it also says is that this intervention is incredibly basic in some ways. If I wanna flip back to that slide of somebody using in an alley, it's not hard to imagine what the liability are in that situation. But to talk about supervised consumption sites at their most basic level, what you get when you enter them is you are entering an indoor space, first of all. You get a roof keeping the weather off of you. You have safety and some privacy so you're not subject to harassment. You have access to that first world staple running water so you can wash your hands and wash the injection site before you use. So in some ways, what the illicit sites point out is that supervised consumption sites are a very basic intervention in very many ways. Uh, Basically, there are supervised consumption sites that operate throughout the world. Many of them have different operating methods and procedures and mandates. The one commonality is the idea that injection takes place on the premises and it is supervised. Beyond that, there's a great deal of variation in terms of how they're run. So Insight opened in September 2003 and it was the first question around Insight's opening was, will people come to use it? The central difficulty that we have in terms of dealing with these issues is that we've spent 100 years telling drug users to stay away, telling them that they're absolutely not wanted in our emergency rooms anywhere. And now we have a crisis where we need to connect with drug users and need to connect with some of the most marginalized drug users. It's at those margins that the highest rates of HIV seroconversion, hepatitis C seroconversion, and fatalities are happening. So how do we manage to get this population to use this service? 
So Insight was formed as a, an explicit partnership between the healthcare authority, which is the funding arm of the provincial government, and the nonprofit that I work for, which is the Portland Hotel Society. There's a long acronym associated with it, PHS Community Services Society. But that idea of doing a blending between uh, the clinical arm, as it were, of the government, and in fact, the funders of Insight, and a nonprofit that's been embedded in the downtown east side and embedded with that community is a very, very important partnership. So the staffing model of Insight includes nurses hired through the healthcare authority, program workers or mental health workers, many of whom do not have clinical backgrounds that are hired through the Portland Hotel Society. They are hired because they are embedded with this population and tend to have relationships with this population in the downtown east side. So they're, they're an important social factor in terms of the running of the site. And there's a third crucial group that works at Insight, and those are peers, that is active drug users in the community who also work at the site. The incorporation of people from the community into the running of the site is one of the most important aspects in terms of allowing buy-in for that community to happen. Drug users organized under the... the in a variety of ways in Vancouver, but the creation of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users was one of the most signally important things in terms of the advocacy for healthcare and harm reduction in the downtown east side. And it was Van Du that really pushed to have a peer presence working at Insight. So what you have when you enter Insight is you will have a staff come and you actually really won't know whether that staff is a nurse or a program staff or a peer. You'll know a little bit depending on what room you're in. So when you come into Insight, you will be greeted at reception, and I'll just flip forward to this, uh, and you will have a sign-up procedure. Now, we did not want to have the sign-up procedures to be onerous, so we have a very brief conversation that we're going to have with users to establish that they need to use the service. We'll tell them about the service, but what we want in that is to give them some buy-in around that service. We don't call people that use the service clients or patients. We call them participants. So the idea of actively engaging the people that use the service into the service is of a primary importance. We do not ask for ID. People don't have ID. It's going to be a barrier to service. Nor do we subject them to a lengthy interview. When I have a conversation with somebody who uses the site, that person-to-person -person adjudication is going to tell me an awful lot around whether or not this is an appropriate service for them. Part of our mandate says that people have to be existing injection users to access the site. So a little bit of that conversation is about ascertaining that, and there's various ways that we can do that with accuracy. Uh, so that conversation is short, it's welcoming, and it basically underscores that relationship building is of the utmost importance in terms of engaging this population in healthcare. And it starts at that intro. After that conversation, if people sign up, they are allowed to choose a code name identifier and they can get really creative with that. That's a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> and we will allow them to use any codename identifier that they would like. That is the only name that they will be referred to by when they use it Insight. So once we get a file opened and your codename is Johnny Love, you will come in, announce that you're Johnny Love, and state the purpose of your visit. For most people, it is to use the injection room, but it may be to see a nurse. It may be to see about getting into treatment, detox, it may be to see about getting housing, it may be to just talk with the staff, or it may be to engage and see if you can get work through the peer program. So therapeutic pre-employment is an underutilized part of drug treatment that is actually really important to insight. So scrolling back here, 
Insight sees 500 to 800 visits a day. Those are not individual visits. Uh, at our height, we've had visits uh, per day of close to 1,200, meaning it is a robustly used service by the community. For many of the people that attend Insight, it is one of the few indoor spaces that they are allowed into. So that speaks to the degree to which this population is marginalized not only in the downtown east side, but in most cities throughout North America. Our injection room, which has 12 bays, will top out at about 600 injections per day, and it generally operates at capacity. Most of the people attending the site have deep backgrounds of trauma. The attendance of the site resembles the demographics of the neighborhood, which skew male and Caucasian. 30 overdoses per week is an average zero fatalities, a high rate of people attending the site are HIV, or I mean HCV positive, and about 20% are HIV positive. So again, the whole idea of relating to people ends up being person to person. The clinical system in Vancouver, and I suspect everywhere else in North America, is not friendly to intravenous drug users. It's not friendly to poor people. It's not friendly to poor people who are drug users with mental health issues. So a lot of the drug users are not interested in engaging with an overtly clinical system. So it's important that we run Insight like a community center for drug users that happens to have embedded clinical supports. So relationship building, considering the participants of the site as stakeholders, is incredibly important. And devising these sites, you need to use bottom-up expertise. The expertise does not come from the civic governance, the healthcare authority. It comes from the people in the community describing what that service needs to look like. And if we ignore that advice, we are not going to be maximizing access to this population. So people will come in. And after they do that original sign-up, you come in and you say, my name's Johnny Love and I want to use the injection room, and you are entered in for a visit. So it is very low barrier access. And once your name comes up in the queue and you are asked to enter the injection room, you enter this space. We call it, generally people say, oh, it looks like a hair salon. That is a design choice. There are lots of ways to arrange these sites, but we wanted a space that looked clean and pushed back against maybe the popular subconscious imagination around what drug consumption spaces look like. Uh, the booths are clean, the lighting is pertinent over the booths, but it's not a glaringly clinical space. I mean, it looks kind of clinical in this space. That's because you can't hear music playing in the room. There's no participants. There's no dogs in the room. There's no bikes in the room. There's nobody on rollerblades in the space. But all of those things happen while the space is open. It's a vital space. It's a community space. It does not feel like an emergency room. So again, access to basic hygiene is incredibly important about the site. Simply allowing this population a space to wash their hands is crucial, and it's absolutely absent throughout the community. So access to basic hygiene, access to safer equipment, and access to a space where you can use under supervision. That is the basic aspects of Insight, and the mandate is to prevent overdose fatalities, to reduce the spread of blood-borne disease, to create relationships with some of the most marginalized drug users in Vancouver, in Canada, in North America, and to leverage those relationships into access to other services. 
So after people have finished using in the injection room, and we have no time limits on that, they can go into a nursing treatment room and receive wound care. They can receive point-of-care uh, HIV testing, STI testing, a variety of clinical engagement that can happen there in, a, in an environment that makes sense to people with nurses that work well with this population. And then people can head into the chill-out lounge. This lounge is run primarily by people from the community. So it offers access to therapeutic pre-employment. What does therapeutic pre-employment do for this population? It provides structure. It provides identity that is positive. It provides some small amount of remuneration, but it also makes them feel a positive part of a community. So it's an incredibly important part, actually, of a broader definition of healthcare, as is relationship building at the site. So who uses Insight? The Insight is probably one of the most rigorously studied health interventions in Canadian history. And there are volumes of research that is published online. I will show you a link to some of it at the end of this presentation. But Insight is used by some of the highest risk users, some of the highest risk for HIV seroconversion, some of the highest risk for overdose fatality. By lowering barriers to access, by being relationship oriented, by the inclusion of the community into the running of this site, we've made this space available to some of the most marginalized people who aren't welcome in any other their service, and we've done that in a way that has actually been very unproblematic for the community. We also tend to attract users who have difficulty injecting themselves outside of the site. And instruction in best practices, safer injection instruction, is one of the most important aspects of engagement that happen at the site. It seems a bit counterintuitive. Oh my god, you're teaching somebody how to inject themselves. But the fact is, there's a high degree of people who come into the site, often women who have been intravenous drug users sometimes for over a decade and have never self-injected. That puts you in an incredibly high risk bracket for HIV seroconversion. So teaching self-injection and safer injection practices is actually an incredibly important thing to do for this community. These things happen, and these healthcare engagements are, do not happen in terms of appointments. What you have with Insight is you have a marginalized population that never accesses other healthcare services. And with the robust use of Insight, you have this population streaming past our healthcare system multiple times per day. That's a goldmine in terms of potential engagements, and you don't need to force that engagement. Because people are connected with that service and use it on a daily basis, that relationship and that trust with healthcare, or that relationship and that trust that leads us to have a conversation around you accessing detox, is, can happen naturally. So, from the scientific evaluation, there have been a large number of overdoses to state the obvious and zero fatalities at Insight. Not only that, but the overdose rate in Vancouver has gone down substantially in the downtown east side and in the city at large since the opening at Insight. We have a good partnership, an implicit partnership with the Vancouver Police Department in the running of this site, and it's been a very positive relationship. It has not increased crime or drug dealing in the area. And that has been the conclusion of both the Vancouver Police Department and our national police force, the RCMP. It gets people to treatment. On-site detox, which is located above Insight, does over 400 admissions a year and has as high a completion rate as any other detox in the lower mainland. And it deals with a much more acute population accessing the site. So Insight is associated with a 30% increase in detox rates and 
I just want to say that more than just a clinical space, it is also a space for a community to exist in. This is Brian Elaine. He is the leader of the peer program at Insight. He was a drug user in the downtown east side for about 20 years. He's worked at Insight since it opened. This is him celebrating his 52nd birthday. He stopped injecting in 2005. And it's been an important space for people both culturally, clinically, and it's a life-saving space. So I will direct you, if you want to look at more research, to Community Insight Science, that address up there. And that is my email address just below that. You can write me an email anytime, and I will be more than happy to have a dialogue with you around the efficacy and importance of these sites. That was brief. There's a lot more to talk about, but I'll be talking later at lunch. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Darwin. Our, our next speaker is going to be uh, Clark Neely. Clark Neely is Cato's Vice President for Criminal Justice, and his areas include constitutional law, over-criminalization, civil forfeiture, police accountability, and gun rights. Um, he, uh, before joining Cato in 2017, Clark was a senior attorney and constitutional litigator at the Institute for Justice and director of the Institute's Center for Judicial Engagement. He began his legal career as a law clerk to Judge Royce Lambert of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. And he, Clark uh, received his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Texas, where he was chief articles editor of the Texas Law Review. Clark? Good morning. I'm a relatively new parent. I have two children. My son is five, my daughter is four. When you're a new parent, you spend a lot of time thinking about how to protect your children and what it is in their environment that you should be most concerned about. For most of the last 50 or 60 years, the two things that were most likely to take your children besides disease were automobile accidents and suicide. Today, it's suicide and opioids. As uh, uh, self-driving cars and Uber and technologies like that come to the fore and we, we uh, have achieved uh, significant success reducing drunk driving, the likelihood that your children are going to be taken away in their teenage years by a motor vehicle accident is diminished considerably, but the likelihood that your children will be taken away in their teenage years um, through opioid overdose has gone up exponentially. That's what you should be worried about if you're a parent, and I am terrified of it. The drug war, as everybody in this room knows, has been a failure. I think the only other question is whether it has also been a disaster. I think it has. It has blinded us to other options, other approaches that almost certainly would be more efficacious. And uh, as we've seen from Darwin's statistics, and as many of you know, um, people are paying a price for that. They're paying with their lives. So the question is whether there's a better way. The answer is absolutely. And one question, I'm going to use the term safe injection facility. There are different terms for it, but then I'm talking about a place where you can go and have your drugs tested and have access to medical care to prevent you from dying of an overdose. Um, I personally think that safe injection facilities are a better way a much better way um, than prohibition. Uh, the problem is that the government doesn't see it that way. The government um, is, I think, uh, it's reasonable to describe the government's attitude towards uh, the war on drugs and drug prohibition as an addiction. The government is, in fact, addicted to the war on drugs, ironic as that may be. So uh, there are two significant barriers, or I should say barriers at two levels, uh, to uh, moving forward with a safe injection facility policy in America. Uh, you have state and local laws, and then you have federal laws. 
I think that uh, the state and local laws are a much easier uh, obstacle to surmount, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about them, but I will explain briefly why I think that the state and local prohibition is, is easier to get around. To be clear, uh, just the possession of opioids uh, and other narcotics um, is illegal, uh, both at the state and the federal level, without a prescription. So right there, uh, the government, and when I say the government, I mean writ large, federal, state, and local authorities have a, a lever right off the bat, regardless of what we want the policy to be, it is illegal to possess uh, these substances. And so that gives the government a tremendous lever to just, if they wanted to, they could just stage raids all the time just, just to, to enforce possession laws. And those possession laws are not going anywhere. Um, notwithstanding the direction the country's moving in on marijuana, there's no indication uh, that we're about to see a similar uh, movement uh, in terms of decriminalizing uh, opioids. But I still think that the uh, obstacles at the state and local level are relatively surmountable, and here's why. First of all, you can choose your jurisdiction, right? You have thousands of jurisdictions. You have 50 states, 51 if you include the District of Columbia, and you have thousands of local jurisdictions. And you can choose the ones that are most amenable uh, to a more enlightened policy, like safe injection facilities. Um, you also have more officials that you can deal with. All it takes is one relatively enlightened public official with authority over uh, uh, law enforcement in that area. It could be a governor. It could be a, a local district attorney. It could be even be the police chief, potentially. But if you find the right public official who agrees with you um, and is simply willing to make uh, uh, enforcement prior to deprioritize enforcement against a safe injection facility, um, then there's a way forward. So the real action, in my view, uh, and the real problem is the federal government. And if you are not laser focused on the federal government, and specifically the Department of Justice, when it comes to this issue, then I'm, uh, you're looking in the wrong place, in my judgment. The number one legal obstacle to moving forward with safe injection facilities in the United States is the Department of Justice. How do we know that? Because they've made their position crystal clear. Uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, in uh, August of this year, of last year, 2018, uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in which he uh, specifically addressed the issue of safe injection facilities and said it is the position and the policy of the Department of Justice that these are illegal and will not be permitted. The, the Deputy Attorney General of the United States does not take to the uh, pages of the New York Times lightly to announce a policy like that. That is a red line in the sand and there is no question whatsoever what DOJ's policy is. And in fact, uh, the US attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, which has jurisdiction of, over Philadelphia, went on CNN in uh, October of 2018 to address the exact issue that we're here to talk about today, and, and uh, more specifically, the potential opening of a safe injection facility uh, in Philadelphia by Safe House, the organization that Governor Wendell will be talking about. Um, and um, Bill McSwain, the U.S. Attorney for, for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, uh, likewise left no question whatsoever what his and the DOJ's position was. In fact, his uh, exact quote was that in DOJ's position, or in DOJ's view, safe injection facilities are spectacularly, egregiously, and flagrantly illegal and will not be permitted. Uh, again, let me emphasize, if you are not laser-focused on the Department of Justice and the federal government and its opposition to safe injection facilities, then you're looking in the wrong place. So the question is whether uh, DOJ has plausibly has the legal authority uh, to, to interfere with or shut down a safe injection facility. And unfortunately, as much as I wish the answer were otherwise, the answer is absolutely yes. 
As I mentioned a moment ago, one problem is that just the possession of uh, non-prescription opioids or opioids for which you, do not, you, you yourself do not have a, a prescription is illegal under federal law. That's a powerful lever. Um, granted, DOJ doesn't generally uh, enforce that uh, mere possession laws uh, against individuals. They tend to go after bigger fish, but they could if they wanted to. And they could stage raids uh, of any uh, facility or, or any domicile or business where people were gathering uh, to, um, to use narcotics. They don't generally do that, but that doesn't mean they couldn't. They could absolutely just shut the thing down just by enforcing possession laws. But they have an even more effective tool, uh, and that is 21 U.S.C. 856, also known as the Crack House Statute. This is a statute that was enacted by Congress in the 1980s in an attempt uh, to empower the, the, the federal law enforcement uh, to shut down uh, uh, buildings, uh, residences, apartments, uh, and any other facility where people were gathering um, in order to, uh, to consume crack cocaine. The language of uh, 21, uh, 856, or 21 USC 856 um, maps perfectly onto what uh, safe injection facilities are doing. Um, it, to be clear, it wasn't intended to address that issue because no one knew what uh, safe injection facilities were back then, but the language maps perfectly. Uh, 21 USC 856A2 uh, provides that it is uh, unlawful to knowingly manage or control any place or make available for use the place for the purpose of unlawfully manufacturing, storing, distributing, or using a controlled substance. That is exactly what safe injection facilities do. They are managed for the purpose of knowingly uh, enabling people to use uh, controlled substances on the premises. Now, you could certainly argue about whether uh, congressional intent is relevant here, and maybe there should, uh, the law should be uh, interpreted much more narrowly than it's written in order to allow this uh, sort of innovation. Um, and in fact, the uh, Department of Justice uh, has filed a declaratory judgment act, uh, uh, declaratory judgment action against uh, safe houses. Declaratory judgment uh, action is essentially a, uh, a legal proceeding where a party can go into court um, and get a legal determination uh, of some question, and the question here is whether this statute uh, does or does not cover uh, the, the proposed uh, operation of a safe injection facility. So the DOJ has effectively asked a federal judge to interpret the statute that I just quoted to determine whether it does or doesn't cover what safe injection facilities uh, propose to do in Philadelphia. I think the answer to that question is virtually certain. Uh, and I, I think that the court ultimately, whether it's the district court or the court of appeals, is virtually certain to rule in favor of the government. Why do I say that? If you look at the history of the drug war, um, what you will see uh, is that the Department of Justice has advanced some truly preposterous interpretations of federal law throughout history, uh, both the Constitution uh, and federal statutes. Let me give you one example. Um, in a 2005 case uh, called Gonzalez v. Raich, the U.S. Department of Justice took the position that the Constitution's uh, authorization to Congress to regulate commerce among the states applies to somebody growing a plant in their backyard and giving it to a neighbor. Literally, the local non-commercial cultivation of a plant that you then give to somebody in the same state, and DOJ's position was, yeah, we can criminalize that using our power to regulate commerce among the states. And what did the Supreme Court say to that? By a six to three vote. That is a preposterous interpretation of Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. And the US Supreme Court said, looks good to us. 
Um, just a few years ago, uh, a federal district court ruled in a case that was uh, attempting to get marijuana rescheduled. Uh, as most of you probably know, marijuana is a Schedule I drug, the most restricted. One of the requirements to be a Schedule I drug is that it have no um, medically accepted use. And the Department of Justice's position in that case is that marijuana has no medically accepted use. That is preposterous. Preposterous. What do you think the federal district court judge said? Looks good. Um, so the problem in this case is that the DOJ's interpretation of Section uh, 856 is not preposterous, which is somewhat unusual for DOJ <laughs> to offer a not preposterous interpretation of a statute. Um, it may even be correct. Um, but what we do know is that in the history of the drug war, um, the federal judiciary has only ever had one word for the Department of Justice, regardless of how ridiculous its interpretation of federal law is, and that word is fine. So it's possible that the courts will break uh, tradition in this case, but I think it's unlikely. So does that mean that um, effectively we're at an impasse, that it is, impo that it is impossible um, to uh, operate a safe injection facility? Um, given the implacable opposition of the United States Department of Justice? Well, I have some very good news for you. The answer is absolutely not. It does not mean that we cannot go forward. And why do I say that? Well, as with the states, the key here is not to try to interpret the law as if it doesn't apply or to get the law repealed, which is never going to happen. The key is to get the relevant enforcement authorities to turn a blind eye, to allow the illegal conduct to occur. DOJ turns a blind eye to all kinds of things. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, even just the mere possession of marijuana is illegal under federal law. Does DOJ spend any significant resources enforcing that law against individuals? It does not. It turns a blind eye. Um, can anybody think of a place where DOJ consistently turns a blind eye to the open and notorious consumption of all manner of drugs and even the sale of those drugs, there is a place, or I should say there is a particular kind of place in America where DOJ turns a blind eye and allows rampant drug use and even drug distribution to occur without a peep. Where is it? College campuses. College campuses. Um, when's the last time you... I assume you all know, don't, don't raise your hands, but I assume one way or another you all know that drug use is rampant on college campuses, because it is. Um, when's the last time you heard of a DEA undercover operation to take down drug distribution or drug use on a college campus? Never. You never heard of it. When's the last time you saw a SWAT team battering down the door of a college dormitory and tossing in flashbang grenades and going in there with automatic weapons and proning out all the residents of that room? The answer is never. You've never seen it. When's the last time you saw DOJ file a federal forfeiture action against a dormitory at Harvard or Yale or Princeton where there's a ton of drug use? Never. You never saw it. It's not because they couldn't do it. It's because they don't do it. Why don't they do it? Well, that's an interesting question. It's an interesting question about re which reasonable people um, can disagree. Uh, I have my own theory. Uh, my own theory is this. We absolutely have the stomach to put the sons and the daughters of the inner city in prison for 10, 20, 30 years, or maybe even for life, we absolutely don't have the stomach to put the sons and the daughters of the Ivy League in prison for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And more particularly, the Department of Justice doesn't have the stomach to put the sons and the daughters of the Ivy League in prison the way they do the sons and the daughters of the inner city. And I think that holds the key for how we go forward. There are places in America where the Department of Justice turns a blind eye to rampant drug use and even distribution. I've described one of them. 
What I would propose, if you want to go forward with safe injection facilities, is to identify all of the ones that you can. And when I say all of the ones that you can, I'm talking about places where the DOJ deliberately turns a blind eye to rampant drug use. We know they do it in at least one place. I don't think necessarily they do it in prisons. I think they just can't control it in prisons for a variety of different reasons. But what I'm talking about on college campuses is everybody knows that drug use is rampant on college campuses. And the DOJ certainly knows. And they stand by and do nothing. Um, so what we need to figure out is why. Why is it the DOJ does nothing to interdict drug use and drug distribution on college campuses, find other places where DOJ also turns a blind eye and declines to enforce uh, uh, federal drug laws, and then see if we can figure out what those places have in common. What is it that causes the Department of Justice to turn a blind eye to rampant drug use and distribution on college campuses, and more specifically in a college dormitory? Um, and Again, there, there are many theories about that. I've articulated one. But I think the path forward for a safe injection facility is to figure out what is that secret sauce? What is it that enables, uh, for example, uh, Harvard or Princeton or Yale to operate a dormitory that is rife with drug use and even drug distribution right under the noses of federal authorities and not have to be afraid of anything? No meaningful enforcement, no threat of enforcement, no plausible possibility of enforcement. Whatever that secret sauce is, whatever it is that enables private colleges, and specifically private college dormitories, to flout federal drug laws, that's the secret sauce. And I think once you figure out what that is, then you figure out how to become one of these places where DOJ turns a blind eye to rampant drug distribution and drug use, then you will find the path forward. Thanks very much. Thank you, Clark. Uh, our next speaker is Governor uh, Ed Rendell. Uh, governor Rendell served as governor of Pennsylvania from 2003 to 2011. His commitment to making government more responsible and responsive to the public's needs led to successfully cutting wasteful spending and improving efficiency, leading to savings of over a billion dollars. As mayor of Philadelphia from 1992 to 2000, Governor uh, Rendell eliminated a crippling deficit, balanced the city's budget, and generated five consecutive budget surpluses. Before serving as mayor, Rendell was district attorney of Philadelphia. And during the 2000 presidential election, he served as chairman of the Democratic National Committee. He currently sits on several boards, supports nonprofit organizations, and teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. An Army veteran, he holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and a JD from Villanova Law School. Governor Rendell. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. And I've learned some critical things just from our first two speakers. So being in a car in the rain coming down from Philadelphia for three and a half hours appears to be worth it. Um, there's so much that I want to key off our first two speakers. But let me tell you a little bit of the history of where Philadelphia stands on this. And you will see it dovetails into what the first two speakers talked about. First of all, after hearing the first two speakers, I am compelled to, to act upon an urge that I had after the 2016 election, and that's to move to Canada. <laughs> but, but, uh, I was elected mayor of the city of Philadelphia in 1991. In my fourth month in office, and I inherited the largest municipal deficit in terms of overall revenue in the history of the country. So 
Drug use was not high on our priorities as we took office. But in the fourth month, my uh, health department came to me and said, the mayor, we want you to issue an executive order of non-enforcement. I couldn't legalize. The mayor has no right to legalize something that is illegal by statute. But essentially saying we wouldn't enforce the drug laws against something called Prevention Point. Prevention Point was not a safe house. Prevention Point, at its onset, had one mission, and that was to give someone a clean needle in return for them turning in a dirty needle. The reason that the health department came to me is we were right in the midst of the AIDS epidemic, and people were dying in Philadelphia from AIDS. Poor people, middle-class people, rich people, white people, black people, Latinos, people were dying and 50% of the deaths in Philadelphia were caused not by sexual activity, but by using dirty needles. So we set up a site, controversial, it was in a neighborhood and it was highly controversial. We set up a site where people could come, no questions asked, get a clean needle. It was just a needle exchange. It wasn't, uh, there was no injection on the site, et cetera. That was, at the time, a violation of state law, distributing drug paraphernalia, and a violation of federal law at the time. The prevention Point was run extremely well. It was a combination between the health department aiding a nonprofit. Prevention Point is now 26 years old. We were the first city to have one, and I think there are now 30 major cities in the United States have prevention points in operation. Interestingly, one week after my executive order, I got a call from the Secretary of Health in the state of Pennsylvania. Tom Ridge was the governor at the time. And he said, uh, you can't do that, it's illegal. And the governor's gonna order the state police to make arrests. Uh, so I said to him, look, don't bother to go to the site. If you want to make arrests, and I put this in writing, if you want to make arrests, come to 212 City Hall. It's my office. Arrest me first. Now, I say that with some trepidation because our state and county prison systems aren't the best. <laughs> 26 years later, I said the same thing to the federal authorities, and I'm hoping to go to one of those places where they play tennis and have <laughs> country club food. But needless to say, the state dropped it. They decided not to make an arrest either of the volunteers who were operating Prevention Point or of public officials like myself and our health commissioner. 26 years later, Prevention Point is so successful that the federal government, I don't know the year, Mr. Dr. Neely may know the year, uh, passed an amendment to the distribution of narcotics paraphernalia legalizing this type of activity but it was relatively recently. Now, fast forward 25 years. A friend of mine, one of my college classmates, Ted, Ted Decker, his 30-year-old son, who was a lacrosse star at Cornell, overdosed in he and his wife's bed while they were away on vacation and died. I knew John Decker since he was a little boy. He had everything going that a human being could have. He was smart. He 
He was funny. He was good looking. He had a terrific job. He had the world by the, by the throat. There was no, nothing in his future that he couldn't accomplish. And he died. He died in what should have been an easily preventable way. Ted asked me to speak at his funeral. And I did. Uh, I spoke a little bit about John, and then I spoke about the growing opioid crisis, which occurred really and it heightened it after I left office as governor. I left office as governor in January of 2011. And I said, for me, opioid crisis was something I read about in the newspaper. It happened to other people, people I didn't know. And I read about it, and I was interested, but I didn't get involved. And I said, from the day of John's death, it's not personal with me. And it better become personal with all of us because nobody knows where the, next death, where the next death is going to occur. It could occur to some poor kid homeless in the streets. It could occur to the richest developer in Philadelphia's son. It has, and it will continue to do so. So the Prevention Point people came to me about six months ago and said, we want to set up a new nonprofit for safe injection. And they talked to me about harm reduction. And they didn't have to persuade me very hard because of the success of Prevention Point. 1,217 people, mostly young people, overdosed and died in Philadelphia in 2017. Our homicide rate, which is one of the worst in the country, caused us to lose 300 people that same year. If the homicide rate jumped from 300 in Philadelphia to 1217 in one year, there'd be a public outcry. You'd have the National Guard in, in the streets. But 217, again, mostly young people, overdosed, and nobody said anything. Nobody did much. We decried it, but we didn't do anything. So they came to me and asked me to be the incorporator as both a lawyer as an individual of the 501c3, which I agreed to do, and they asked me to go on the board. We have three people on the board. We have an advisory board, but three people on the board because we're the only three who, for whatever reason, don't fear arrest. The two others are people who operate at Prevention Point and understand that what good can come from harm reduction and there's almost no downside. All of the downsides they talked about for a prevention point, just as I'm sure, Darwin, they talked about when your site was set up. People are going to come in and use drugs. They're going to steal and rob in our neighborhood. The data was clear. None of those things happened. Well, you're going to make people into drug users. I said, well, let me get this straight. You're saying that a young person is going to say to themselves, I'm going to start injecting myself with heroin because I know there's a place where I can inject myself and I won't die of an overdose. That's going to be the motivation for them to turn to drugs. Of course, that's painfully absurd. So I said, let's go. And I knew it was against the law. And I knew that the U.S. attorney, our U.S. attorney, said he was responding to an order from Mr. Rosenstein. <clears throat> he asked me out to lunch. He had been a clerk 
for my wife, who was a Federal Circuit Court of Appeals judge in the Third Circuit. So our legal strategy is try to win the case in the district court. But if you lose the case, we're going to appeal it and try to get listed before Judge Rendell. <laughs> but um, he took me out to lunch, and he explained why he was doing this. And I said, listen, you shouldn't do this. It's bad public policy. We went through the discussion about the harm being almost non-existent. And the good, we estimated from the experience in Europe and in Canada, we estimated a safe house in Philadelphia, properly run, would save 50 to 75 lives a year. 50 to 75 lives a year. It would cost the federal government nothing. There was no government money going into our efforts for raising all the money in our, ourselves. And there is no harm. Because again, none of the imagined harms are real or will come to pass. And we know the good that will happen. Not only will it come from preventing the deaths, but prevention point, the interesting statistic is not only did it save people from contracting AIDS, Last year, Prevention Point had took, persuaded 700 people to undergo serious treatment, not just to listen to pitch about treatment, but 700 people through Prevention Point actually signed up for significant treatment programs. Isn't that what we want? To get people who are drug users to seek treatment, to seek help, to seek a better physical condition? All the things that Darwin was, was talking about, we're trying to replicate. We got a very a beautiful building essentially given to us, a dollar a year for the first year in the lease, um, given to us by a developer who owned it, who signed it over to us three months before I went and talked to him. Um, we intend to try to model it after what we saw at Insight, the same type of things, make it a friendly place, make it a place where the, People can go to the bathroom, can wash up, can get showers, uh, things like that. Um, people can stay in. Prevention Point now is indoors. It used to be outdoors. And the Prevention Point people tell me that a lot of people come, exchange the needles, and then hang around because it's the only warm place they're not chased out of. So the battle is joined. We're going to court, not at our choosing, but we're going to the court because the U.S. attorney is seeking this declaratory judgment. I'm not so pessimistic as Dr. Neely for two reasons. One, because one of the first things we learn in law school, if we have an old-fashioned professor, is the phrase, the law is not an ass. My 50-plus years as a lawyer convinced me that that's correct most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. Do you think the men, and I think there was one woman in the subcommittee that passed the crack house law, had any thought at all that they would be making illegal a crack house which didn't possess for one instant any narcotics or narcotics paraphernalia? Understand, to come and use safe house, if we get it up, to come and use safe house, you have to bring your own needle, and your own drugs. We do not possess for one millisecond drugs or drugs paraphernalia. 
our medical personnel will be volunteers. Volunteers from, fortunately, Philadelphia has seven medical schools and we'll get plenty of nurses, nurse practitioners, and um, doctors, interns, residents to volunteer. Do we really want to put those people in jail? A nursing school student who's volunteering her time? A doctor who could be studying or getting some sleep who's also volunteering her time? Do we want to put those people in jail? Do we want to put nuns who serve as nurses in Catholic hospitals? Do we want to put them in jail? There's even an argument that our legal team is thinking of raising that it, it, it's, a, it's a freedom of religion argument, that my religion says I have to heal the sick and that I've got a right under the First Amendment to be there doing exactly that. That's not our strongest argument, but that's... <laughs> that's our strongest argument is legislative intent. Legislative intent does matter. You can't just read black letter law. If you look at cases decided for the last century, Legislative intent is sometimes more important than the actual black letter law. Because you can't put down in black letters everything that's going to develop as technology changes, as circumstances change, as our environment changes. So you look at the legislative intent. There are several senators who were there at the time they voted on the law who are still there. And it is my intention to speak to a few of those senators and see if we can get supporting affidavits that are filed along with Mika's briefs saying, we never intended it to apply to safe house operation. And if we were confronted with that question, we would have carved out an exemption. And then we will get a declaratory judgment. I think we're going to win. I think legislative intent is important. But if we lose, we're going forward. Most of the changes that have occurred in not only our country, but in other places in the world, occurred because there was sensible citizen disobedience. And I was a prosecutor. I was the elected district attorney of Philadelphia for two terms, eight years. I was an assistant district attorney for seven years. And I was a law clerk in the district attorney's office for two years. And I know about prosecutorial discretion. When I became district attorney, we stopped prosecuting sodomy among consenting adults. It was on the books in Pennsylvania. We stopped prosecuting possession of small amounts of marijuana. It's called prosecutorial discretion. We, prosecutors use it all the time in the state system, in the federal system. They use it all the time. And when I, we were talking about Dr. Neely the TV show that Mr. McSwain went on, I was the other guest at the show, and I made the point that to Mr. McSwain, you guys don't prosecute possession of marijuana cases. You don't prosecute guns held by former felons, which is a federal and state offense. You don't prosecute a ton of stuff. He didn't prosecute Prevention Point for almost two decades when it was illegal. Not this Justice Department didn't prosecute it. Other Justice Departments didn't prosecute it. So why do you come and prosecute this, which clearly is harm reduction? It's not an intent to profit from sale or distribution of drugs. There is absence of any evil, evil criminal intent. So there's, you can probably make a mens rea argument, too. 
Uh, I believe, as I said, I believe we'll win the declaratory judgment, but we are bound and determined to go ahead. What will happen if we lose the declaratory judgment is I think the U.S. attorney will go in and then try to enjoin us from moving forward, from doing things like signing a lease, et cetera. We're going to go forward. They can come back to court and ask for us to be held in contempt of court, which would be the same thing as jailing us. And we are prepared to, to go to jail. We think that saving people like John Decker or saving some homeless Latino teenager is worth it. Thank you very much. Um, I know the governor has to catch a train soon. Uh, uh, so uh, should we go? Oh, oh, good. Big mistake. Oh, good. good. Okay. In Washington at 8 o'clock, big mistake. <laughs> um, well, we have uh, time, a few minutes for some Q&A. Um, just uh, if you have a question, please wait to be called on and uh, wait for the microphone to come around. Um, and, uh, so th and also speak up so that our online viewing audience can hear the question. I, I ask that you state your name and affiliation when you ask the question and try to keep it as brief as possible so we can fit as many questions in as we can. So, any questions? Um, there's a gentleman uh, raising his hand in the middle, just a couple seats in from the, from the row there. There he is, yeah. This is a related question to the issue of could, safe. Could um, you state your name and oh, affiliation? I'm sorry. My name is Mike Drummond, and uh, this is a related question. Um, mer medical marijuana, which has been passed in many, many states, um, is sort of causing uh, lots of confusion amongst uh, providers of residential services about when a patient presents themselves and they've been prescribed medical marijuana and there's a responsibility to treat an illness while at the same time uh, we're being asked to help that person have their medication within our facility. Any thoughts about how that's being played out in courts? Well, it's an excellent example because um, technically that's a violation of federal law. Someone is possessing Marijuana, which is a Schedule A drug, Schedule One drug, uh, so it's a violation of federal law, and that has interesting ramifications. Um, a lot of the medical marijuana dispensaries are having trouble finding a bank to put their money in because the banks are afraid that they'd be conspiring to help the violation of a federal law, and there are other offshoots to it. It's it's ridiculous. They haven't moved against it. They should, you know, the Congress should do something about it. Um, that's unlikely, just as unlikely as the Pennsylvania legislature would ever authorize the operation of a harm reduction facility. Uh, the gentleman uh, in the aisle there. Thanks. Uh, I'm Charles Lehman. I'm with the Washington Free Beacon. So I want to I want to ask a question. And I'll try to I'll try to say, frame this as clearly as possible, but I want to ask a question about sort of the fundamental causes of the efficacy of safe injection sites or safe consumption sites, because it seems to me there are a couple of different factors that are at play. Right? There's the availability of uh, clean resources. There's the availability of testing. But there's also, and I think uh, Darwin talked about this, the access 
A, to community, and B, to treatment um, as sort of longer-run things that can help people move away from uh, harmful drug use. So the, the question I want to ask is sort of which are the most important factors or what is, is there reason to believe that one factor is more important than the other in terms of where we emphasize what the priorities of harm reduction policy more broadly should look like? Oh. That's an excellent question. <laughs> I mean, from my point of view, uh, you, you, know, you mentioned that word community and accessibility. I think that is fundamentally of the highest importance. Everything else flows from that. The access to the site flows from that. The access to running water flows from that. The access to clean equipment, to life-saving care, and then ultimately to varieties of wellness, whether that is accessing housing, shelter, uh, treatment facilities, or employment. There are various ways that people can find more structure and organization to their lives through access that way. I think that's all centered around a welcoming community because you can create these spaces and you can create them in a manner that is actively hostile to the people that they're actually designed to serve. So I think fundamentally they need to be designed again with the community and by the community. They are place-specific interventions that way. Yeah, I would echo that. We, our community, initially was rapidly against it. I'd still say they're slightly against it. But one of the things we've done, for example, we took uh, about seven community leaders, two city council people, uh, and one person from the police department up to Toronto. We would have gone to Vancouver, but it's more expensive. <laughs> um, we took them up to Toronto where they saw not only the officials who run the safe injection site there, but the members of the community talk to members of the surrounding community in Toronto. Getting it, it not, you, I don't think in the US initially, and I don't know where the first site will be, maybe Seattle, maybe Philadelphia, maybe New York, but initially I think you're not gonna get the community to say we want it, although we've convinced them that all this drug usage, which happens outdoors now in clear view of their children, a lot of that will be pulled inside, so there's an upside to it for the community. But we think that the best we'll get from the community is to meet the opposition. I might add that just recently, uh, the mayor of Boston returned from a trip to Canada and also had his mind changed on this issue. So I think most of the major cities now are starting to, to yeah, at least I, want this. I think this will be, if we could roll the clock forward 10 years from now, this will be like prevention point. It'll be existing. Gentlemen in the, in the first row. Howard Woldridge with uh, COPS, Citizens Opposing Prohibition, and LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. For Dr. Fisher, I'm very familiar with the Swiss uh, heroin-assisted treatment program uh, run in 23 cities, et cetera. I also understand a couple of years ago, Canada did pass prescription heroin. Well, uh, there's a gentleman who just moved in the second row who's going to be speaking yeah, later, Scott McDonald. Okay. Stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> and my question is uh, two things. Is, is Canada coming close to what's probably considered the most effective, life-saving, aggressively pro-life program in the world, which is the Swiss system of uh, uh, medication-assisted, including heroin-assisted um, uh, treatment? And also, can an American today go to Canada uh, present themselves with medical records that they are obviously uh, a, an opioid user, a heroin injector, and receive prescription uh, heroin from a Canadian doctor. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, first of all, in, in terms of responding to the first question, I sure as hell hope so. Uh, something broad needs to happen, and it needs to happen quickly. Scott and I were talking earlier. The size of the cohorts receiving these treatments are small. There's an estimated estimated because it's not a question on the long-form census in Canada. It's hard to track exactly how many intravenous drug users there are on the downtown east side. Estimates are from 3,000 to 6,000 in that very small area that way. Uh, the cohorts of the Salome program, which is just such an important program, and other injectable opiate treatment programs are very small right now. We need bolder and broader action that way. I think the time is right, but but, but I feel like we're on a precipice here and we need something to happen within the next year. I'm absolutely unsure if someone coming upstairs, I mean, the one thing about the Salome Project and others is that often these are these can be challenging programs to access compared to something as low barrier as accessing a supervised injection facility. Uh, naturally, there's a referral process that Scott can detail a little bit more, and I think that they've done enormous amount of work to shepherd people through that process, but it's not like I showed up in the downtown east side on Tuesday and I was in Salome on Thursday, right? So Scott will take you a bit more through that. It is not yet at the point where it is broadly accessible to someone walking into the community. That's a good teaser for later on today because oh, man, we're yeah. going to have a whole panel on that. <laughs> I just have time for one more question. Um, the gentleman in row two there. Oh, Leap is awesome, by the way. <laughs> they came up and they were a riot. <laughs> good morning. My name is Zach Ford. I'm with an organization here in D.C. called Age United. Um, I manage the syringe access fund there. Uh, my question is, you know, last year Congress proposed but did not enact a ban on federal funding for safer consumption spaces. And so I'm wondering if you all think that this uh, could be interpreted that Congress actually finds them legal, which is why they're um, proposing not to, to enact a ban on the funding of them. Anybody have an idea on that one? Um, no. Congress does not think, I mean, I, I don't know that Congress has sort of come to a conclusion as a body uh, about this issue. So, but I think it's, I think it, there's no reason whatsoever to suppose that, you know, the, the failure to enact legislation evinces a conviction on the part of Congress in one way or the other. They fail to enact all kinds of legislation for all kinds of reasons. So um, I'd love for it to be true, but I don't think that that's a plausible interpretation of their inaction. And interestingly, that's the administration's answer is, you know, don't set up these safe injection sites, lobby Congress to make them legal. Well, one of the things that I think arrests would do, if they're dumb enough to arrest people, one of the things that I think arrests would do is lead to the, an amendment carving out operations like this that don't possess, that are medically driven, that there's no profit motive to carving them out as an exception to the crack house law. Okay. So I won't have spent time uh, in prison in vain. Thank you. Unfortunately, our time is up. We have to keep on the schedule. So I'd really like to thank our, our fantastic speakers. <clears throat>